On January 8, 1993, the owners of a Brown's Chicken restaurant in Palatine, Illinois, and five of their employees were gunned down shortly after close. Though DNA and palm prints were left at the scene, the case grew cold. Then, nearly nine years after the massacre, two women came forward to point the finger at two men. Both men confessed, but now claim they're innocent. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to part two of the Browns Chicken Massacre. If you did not listen to part one, you have to stop this and go listen, or else I will make less sense than usual. So a quick recap of this case and the victims, because we always want to remember the lives that were lost, even though in this episode, we are going to get into the weeds of the investigation and the trials. On January 8th, 1993, Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld were at the Brown's Chicken franchise that they owned. They were parents of three mostly grown daughters, and they were building an investment in this restaurant after Richard had trouble finding a job after being laid off. They put everything they had into this time and money, and they were getting this off the ground. With them that night were five employees. Michael Castro and Rico Solis were just 16 and 17 years old high school students earning extra money after school. They both had plans to enlist in the military after high school was over. Marcus Nelson was a 31-year-old Navy veteran with a 7-year-old daughter. He was hoping to move into management at Brown's Chicken. Thomas Menes was 32, and his family said he liked the simple life. He would go hunting, but he never actually killed anything because he just liked being in the woods, just observing. Guadalupe Maldonado was the fifth employee. He was a 47-year-old father of three from Mexico. He would occasionally travel to the U.S. to work for several months, save up money, and then bring his family back to Mexico. That night, January 8, 1993, robbers entered the store and left all seven people dead. Thomas and Richard were found in a walk-in cooler on one side of the building, and the other five people were found in the freezer. In spite of a very active investigation, the case grew cold. In 1999, six years after the crime, a series of confessions made it look like this case was about to be solved. But the confessions contradicted each other, and they were not supported by the evidence. The state had two compelling pieces of forensic evidence. It was believed that the robbers ordered food, ate it, and then robbed the restaurant. The remnants of that meal were pulled out of an otherwise empty trash can. This included a napkin where they were able to lift off a greasy print. They also swabbed the chicken bones and found DNA likely from saliva. It took a few years before the DNA technology 
was advanced enough to get the DNA from the chicken. So they didn't have that evidence very early on, but by the end of the 1990s, they had it. Now, these pieces of evidence did not match the people connected to the earlier confessions, and no one was brought to trial. Then everything changed in March of 2002. A woman named Ann Lockett told a friend that she knew what happened at the Browns' chicken nine years previously. You might remember Ann's name from part one, but probably not because it was just mentioned in passing. But early on in the investigation, authorities interviewed a former employee named Juan Luna. Ann was with him when he went to the police station to be questioned, but she was not interviewed. Ann did not seem eager to go to the police with her statement, but her friend ended up calling the tip in, and investigators told Ann they wanted to talk to her. And her story was very compelling. She said at the time of the massacre, she was in the hospital. Shortly after the massacre, while she was still in the hospital, a man named James Degorski called her. That's another name we heard before. Way back in November 1995, James went to the police station with Juan Luna while they questioned a woman named Eileen Bacala. These are a lot of names to keep up with, plus the names from the last episode. This is a big case. There were a lot of people coming in and out of the narrative. I haven't even gone into all of the suspects here. I'm just naming the people who are going to come up again. Anyway, back to Ann Lockett's story. James called her while she was at the hospital and said she needed to turn on the news. Of course, when she turned it on, it was all about the murders, which is all the local news covered for a while. Anne said that James didn't say he committed those murders, but she got the impression that that's what he meant. Then about two weeks later, Anne was released from the hospital and went over to James's house, and Juan Luna was there. She said they told her that they wanted to, quote, ice someone, They knew the routine of the restaurant, so it seemed like a good option for them. They drove to Brown's Chicken in James's car. They had to walk through some snow to get inside. They ordered food right at closing and ate it in the restaurant, but Juan was getting his hands greasy. James was worried he was going to leave his fingerprints everywhere. So when they finished the food, they threw away the trash and went to the restroom, and there they put on gloves. They came out of the restroom with a knife and a thirty-eight. One employee tried to jump over the counter to get away, and that's when they were shot. James said he was the one who slit Lynn's throat. They then each shot some of the victims. When they were done, they mopped the floor to get rid of their footprints. They picked up shell casings, and then they threw the gun into the Fox River. After hearing what Anne had to say, the police went in early 2002 to Juan Luna's house to question him. Juan was now 28 years old. As a former employee of Brown's, he had been looked at early on. 
but they ran his prints and they did not match the napkin. They hadn't taken his DNA that early on. Again, they didn't really have that DNA tech to where they had the DNA yet from the chicken. So this time they asked him for his DNA and he consented. He also denied being involved. Three weeks later, they brought in James Degorski, the other man in Anne's statement. They swabbed him for DNA and fingerprinted him. He also denied being involved. It was about a month after Juan submitted his DNA that it came back as a match to the DNA on the chicken. In the meantime, the police have learned that James was not keeping his mouth shut. He didn't only tell Anne about the murders, he also told a woman named Eileen Bacala. Now she's willing to talk as well. She said that on the night of the murder, James called her and asked her to come meet him and Juan Luna at a jewel grocery store in Carpentersville. If Google Maps is to be believed, Carpentersville is about a 20-minute drive straight west from Palatine. Eileen got off work around 9.30 and headed to the grocery store. At this time, all of the people we're talking about are in their late teens and early 20s. When Eileen got to the parking lot, they were there with Juan's car. She noticed green rubber gloves in the back seat. And the group decided to leave Juan's car there at the parking lot, and they drove to Eileen's house in her car. While in the car, Eileen asked them about a bag they had with them, and they said they just robbed the Browns' chicken, and it was full of money. At Eileen's house, they split up the money, and James paid Eileen $50 that he owed her. Hours later, she drove Juan home or back to his car, and then she and James drove by the Browns' chicken. The ambulances and police cars were there at this point. Eileen had thought they just robbed the place, so she's wondering why are there ambulances there. And that's when James told her that Juan went ballistic. And he said that Juan is the one who slit Lynn's throat, Juan shot the ones in the freezer, and James had shot the two victims who were in the cooler. The rest of the story pretty much tracked what Anne had claimed, that they mopped the floor, grabbed shell casings, threw the gun in the river, all of that. So the police have two people who didn't witness anything, but they both heard James say that he and Juan did it. Then when they got Juan's DNA, they felt they had a pretty solid case, but they didn't really have anything on James aside from these statements. They decided to do a little bit of a sting, and they had Anne get on the phone with James while they recorded it. She was supposed to try to get him to repeat something of what he said. She told him the police were asking her questions about the Browns' chicken massacre and she asked what she could do, and James said he had no idea what she was talking about. So this plan solidly did not work. Investigators were going to have to confront James themselves. So they drove out to Indianapolis, Indiana, where he was living at the time. 
Because remember, this is nine years later. These men have moved on with their lives. The police figured out when he would be picking up his work truck, and they met him at that parking lot and intercepted him. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. According to the police, James agreed to go back to Palatine for questioning. He signed a consent to travel form, but he was not read his Miranda rights. So he got in the car and drove back with them. Now, James says that he didn't want to go back to Palatine, but he was told he had to and that they had an arrest warrant for him, which they did not have. And the local sheriff in this jurisdiction has said he was also told they had an arrest warrant for James, which they did not have. So we have a little bit of a differing of stories of how things happened. It ended up getting out that a suspect in the massacre was being brought back for questioning, so they diverted course and went to a different police station to avoid the media. Sometimes we hear about these car rides or plane rides where they're transporting a suspect or a fugitive back and they start getting chatty. But that didn't happen here. This entire drive, James did not talk about the murders at all. When they arrived at the police station around 8 p.m., James was Mirandized. He was confronted with the murder accusation, and according to the police, he broke, like right away. He said he was sorry, and then he confessed. At 10.30, the assistant state attorney, Michael McHale, came in. James was Mirandized again. He again agreed to talk, and then at midnight, he was questioned again, then again at 4 a.m. Now, his basic confession that we need to piece together from these interviews, because these interviews were not recorded, piecing together what the police reports say he said, is that James said he and Juan Luna went to the restaurant. They went around closing time because they knew there wouldn't be a lot of people around. James also admitted to being the one who brought the gun. They saw a customer who James described as a woman with two disabled children. They watched her leave. Then they went inside, but they weren't expecting there to be seven employees working. They ordered the chicken, which Juan ate. Then they put on gloves, yelled that this was a robbery. And whoever was mopping offered the men money, which prompted James to fire a warning shot. Everyone was pushed to the back of the store. James then said he killed the two victims in the cooler and Juan killed everyone else, including punching Lynn and then slitting her throat before he shot her. James mopped the floor, they took the money, and they left. Again, knife, gun, shell casings, all of that into the Fox River. He also said he threw his clothes into the dumpster. By the way, the river was searched by divers. Nothing was ever found, so this part of James's story has never been corroborated with any evidence. 
James also said that he told Eileen Bacala and Anne Lockett about committing the murders, and these are the two women that the police spoke to already. So this is a combination of his stories. He didn't tell the same story every single time. So just for instance, he first said he only told Eileen, then later admitted he also told Anne. Uh, Another example is that he once said that Juan slit Lynn's throat. It was later that he added the detail about punching her. So things were kind of added and changed a little as he was being questioned again and again. And again and again without sleep. Around 7 in the morning, they asked James to give his statement on video, but he had been up all this time, and he said he wanted to sleep, so they let him sleep. Then at 4 p.m. on May 17th, he was ready to talk. He signed a consent form to be videotaped. The video started at 4.13 p.m., but instead of talking freely, The investigator walked him through what he had already said the night before, and James just answered that, yes, that was correct. That is what he said. But then he was done talking. They Mirandized him. He said he would say whatever he had to say in court, and the tape was over. It wasn't even five minutes long. It was like four and a half minutes long. And he didn't really say nearly as much on this tape as he had in these non-recorded statements to the police. James was then formally charged with 21 counts of first-degree murder. The counts don't reflect the number of victims, but rather They reflect the number of theories of the crime that would make this a first-degree murder. Since there were seven victims and then 21 counts, it seems like going into this, the jury was going to have three options to consider. James was then booked into the Cook County Jail. Two days later, a paramedic treated him for a broken jaw that was caused by a sheriff's deputy. This incident will come up later. And the paramedic treating him, Alicia Hines, said he talked to her about the murders. Now, the same day James was picked up, Juan was picked up too. He was at a gas station and his son was in the backseat of his car when he was arrested. And again, he was not taken to the Palatine Police Department, but rather the Hoffman Estates Station, which is about 20 minutes out into the suburbs. Now, Juan has a lot to say about how this interrogation went down. First, he and his attorney believe that they took him to this other station in order to keep his family and his lawyer from finding him. Juan also said he was physically assaulted by an officer while he was at the station. Then, before he was questioned, the police gave him his verbal Miranda rights but never had him sign that he understood them or that he waived them. And this is important because English is Juan's second language. Juan further accused the police of making promises. He said he was told he could go and see his son if he confessed, but if he didn't, he'd go to jail without ever seeing his kid again. Over the course of four hours, 
police say he confessed. And the next day, they got him on video. And this was longer than James's video. This was a good 45 minutes. This was about 45 minutes. This video shows Juan being given his Miranda warning and Juan confirming that he knew they were videotaping his statement. And his confession was similar to James's. He added a few things, like how he knew they didn't have any secret alarm at the restaurant. And he knew at the end of the day, there would be a lot of money in the register and the safe. He said James fired a warning shot in the air that an employee tried to escape by jumping over the counter. And James shot him, dragging him back to the cooler, then shooting Richard, the store owner, also in the cooler. Juan said he was the one who slit Lynn's throat right after she opened the safe because he got caught up in the moment. And in his words, he was going wild and crazy. Juan said he shot into the freezer once, but James shot the rest. So now we have both of these men in custody. And if you remember, they had actually compared Juan Luna's prints to the napkin way back in the beginning when he was first brought in to be questioned, and it was not a match. It turned out that the print was believed now to be a palm print on the left hand, which for some reason they didn't take of Juan. So that was never compared. Now they compared it and it was a match. So we have DNA and a palm print linking Juan to the restaurant. And we have his and James's confessions. So who are these two alleged murderers? James Degorski was born in August 1972, making him 20 years old at the time of the murders. He worked as a carpenter and a general handyman. He did have a criminal history prior to this robbery, and it was a violent one. He had been physically abusive to a girlfriend. He had been arrested for battery and unlawful restraint. And he also had arrests for possession of a stolen vehicle. He had a DUI. He had met Juan Luna in high school, and Juan was only 18 at the time of the murders, nearly 19. He and James were best friends, though they were very, very different. Juan's only other arrest was for something like writing a bad check once. He was from Mexico and spent a lot of his time in high school in a special education program. But it seems like this may have been a case of not being fluent in English because his IQ tested in the low average range, definitely in the range where most students would be mainstreamed. Teachers and classmates used words like peaceful, respectful, friendly, kind when they would talk about him. His mother had a kidney issue and he wanted to donate his kidney to her. He had worked for Browns as part of a work-study program towards the end of high school, but he left in June 1992, which was seven months before the murders. And he wasn't fired. He quit. And it's because he got a job that paid more at an appliance store. After the murders, Juan got married. He had a son. His son was four at the time of his arrest. And he just seemed to be living a very 
average life. And these two men really couldn't be much different. But here they are, best friends, and both accused of a heinous crime. It would take five years for the first trial. Juan Luna went first, and his trial began in April 2007. Even though it took so long to go to trial, the trial itself only had about eight days of testimony. The state's case shifted away from the original FBI theory of the crime that we talked about in part one. In part one, they were still working on the theory this was a robbery that ended in murder. But the prosecution said the evidence now shows that it was actually premeditated mass murder. They brought so much ammunition that it wouldn't make sense that this was simply a robbery. The type of gun believed to have been the murder weapon, because remember, they never found it, but they believed it was a 38 that held six bullets. These men would have had to reload that gun. So that meant they brought more ammo with them. If they were going in there just to rob the place, they wouldn't need extra ammo. So the state told the jury that Juan Luna and his accomplice, James Degorski, wanted to do something big, and this murder was what they settled on doing. The main evidence against Juan were statements of Anne Eileen and his own confession, plus the DNA and palm print. And there was something in Juan's confession that made the state say it was more likely true than not, is he knew something only someone at the scene would know. He knew that one of the victims vomited, and vomited up French fries. That's in his confession. They're saying to the jury, how could he know that if he wasn't there? They also said there was another element of this crime that pointed to Juan. Michael Castro and Lynn Ellenfelt knew Juan from when he worked at the restaurant. Everyone else there, with the exception of Richard, had started their jobs later, after he left, and all those people had just been shot. But Michael had been stabbed, and Lynn's throat was cut. They're saying that this overkill is because he couldn't take a chance that either of them would survive because they were the two that could identify him. The defense was that the confession was coerced and the rest of the evidence was not concrete. So let's walk through some of the testimony. Eileen Bacala and Ann Lockett testified, and it's basically the same as what they told the police. Eileen's story now included a part about how Juan smiled when he talked about slitting Lynn's throat a few weeks after the murders, and that hadn't been in the earlier statements, as far as I could tell. On cross-examination, Eileen did admit that she was given a deal of sorts to testify. She would not be prosecuted for lying to the police or being an accessory after the fact. Because if we go back to when she first spoke to the police, she gave James and Juan an alibi, saying they were at her house all night. And now she's saying her alibi was false. And she also took some of the money from the robbery. It was money that James owed her, but she knew where he got it from when she took it. So she was looking at criminal charges herself 
charges that were not pursued when she agreed to testify. So the defense is using this to undermine her credibility a bit. So then Anne testified about what James said happened, implicating Juan, but this information didn't come directly from Juan. Then in her testimony, she's added a few things about how the men told her they went to the restaurant with, quote, pockets full of bullets. She also said they wanted to use her as an alibi at the time, but since she was in the hospital, they couldn't. Any visitors would have to sign in and out. So they went to Eileen instead for the alibi. She said she didn't go to the police because they had threatened her, and that even meant not coming forward when Martin Blake was arrested. If you remember him, he was arrested right after the murders on a pretty shaky tip about him leaving a party early. He won a settlement for false arrest from the city. That's how shaky this arrest probable cause was. Well, Anne and Martin were friends, so her friend was arrested for this crime and she still didn't go to the police. Anne was open on the stand about her substance abuse issues. As she testified, she said she had been sober for a year. She said that she did not have any significant memory issues related to her substance abuse, but the defense jumped on that. She was adding things to her story that she remembered, but somehow didn't remember back when she talked to the police years before. They brought up how she hadn't had contact with Juan or James since probably the mid-90s. She was no longer in any danger from them, but she still didn't go forward to the police until 2002. They basically painted it that Anne didn't actually know this information. She was being coached by the police or the prosecution to add these things that fit the theory of the crime. The state also had medical examiners testify as to the cause of death for all of the victims, and this challenged something we talked about in part one. First, it was determined that Lynn's throat was cut before death and that she died from the gunshot wound to the head. But if she wasn't shot, the cut to her neck would have eventually been fatal. So that's the same as the original theory of the crime. But authorities believed early on that Michael Castro had fought back at some point because he was stabbed in addition to being shot. But this medical examiner said that on autopsy, Michael was likely already dead when he was stabbed. This was overkill and it was unnecessary, and this is backing up the state's theory that Juan was worried Michael would survive and be able to identify him, so he stabbed him after death. Now the defense had their turn, and they attacked this case from a few angles. One was the confession video Juan had given, and the second, of course, was the forensic evidence. So let's talk about the confession. In part one, we talked about John Semenik, who had confessed to the murders. He even had specific information, like that a bullet hit a tray above the fryer. That was something only someone who was there could have known. The defense was able to get John's confession entered into evidence, but they weren't necessarily using him as an alternative suspect. He gave five confessions that were 
inconsistent with each other. He wasn't a very plausible alternative suspect. What they were trying to say was that John Semenik's confessions were false, and he was coerced into making them repeatedly. And he also had information he shouldn't have known. So where did he get that information? Did the police feed that to him in their interrogation method? So why should the jury think the same thing didn't happen to Juan Luna? That the parts of his confession that only the killer would know, like that someone threw up, could have been given to him by the police in the non-recorded interview that happened earlier. Another way they attacked the confession was by trying to show it couldn't have happened the way Juan said, and they called Dr. Malcolm Goodwin to the stand. He specializes in anatomic and primary forensic pathology. He looked at the autopsy, the crime scene photos, all of that, and said all of the bullets entered the victims at downward angles, indicating to him that everyone was sitting or kneeling when they were killed, not jumping over counters. He also said that Lynn's wound to her neck was a post-mortem wound, not pre, like the state said. And that directly contradicts what Juan said happened because he said that her throat was cut before she died. That's the thing with injuries that happen very close to the time of death. Yes, there are signs that say if wounds are pre- or post-mortem, but the closer to the time of death the wounds happened on either side, the harder it can be to know for sure. So Dr. Goodwin was basing his opinion on the neck wound being post-mortem based on the lack of blood near the wound. But this doesn't necessarily change things, except that it brings Juan's confession into question. The state's whole argument was that the person who did this didn't want Lynn or Michael to recognize him. So if Lynn's neck wound was post-mortem, it still points to this being someone concerned specifically with those two people recognizing him. So that's the attack on the confession. Let's get to the forensics because I think this is the real damning part of the prosecution's case. I think you can kick the confession out and they still have a pretty strong case with this DNA. So the defense challenged the handling of the evidence. It was nearly a week after the murders before any of it was even tested. They sent it to the field museum at some point where it was put on a non-sterilized table and handled without gloves. They also challenged the match. They were saying that this DNA was not this huge slam dunk the state was saying it was. The state was saying that it was a one in 2.8 trillion match. But the defense was arguing it was actually more like a one in 200,000 match, which is a huge difference. Based on the population of Illinois at the time, there was a statistical probability, maybe possibility, I'm not a statistician, but there could have been 50,000 other people in Illinois that would match on those same number of alleles. The defense also said that the handling of the evidence in the crime scene made it so that they couldn't even be sure the chicken 
was from that day. There were no photographs taken of the trash can or the contents while they were still at the scene. Even the napkin with the palm print was in question here. And maybe even more so than the DNA, because Juan's prints were compared to the napkin early on, and they were not a match. Now, the state's going back and saying it wasn't a match because, for whatever reason, they didn't take his left palm print, so they had no comparison. When he was arrested, they did take his left palm print and were able to match it. But this print was fairly small. It was less than the diameter of a half dollar, according to the reports, which is such an old man way to reference anything. I don't even think my kids have seen a half dollar. A half dollar is the diameter of 1.2 inches or three centimeters. So smaller than a half dollar. It was small enough that they weren't sure at first it was a palm print because it was more the size of a fingerprint. So when I hear palm print was found, I picture either a whole palm print or maybe even the heel of the hand, but this was smaller than that. So this is definitely what could be considered a partial palm print. The defense, in addition to questioning why did they suddenly only be able to match it to Juan after his arrest, they were wondering why this print was so clear. When you eat something greasy with your hands, you're not dabbing the grease off, leaving a smooth print. You wipe your hands and you're twisting the napkin around a bit. Not only was the print really clear as though he dabbed it, this napkin looked, in the defense's opinion, a little too pristine for having been used. The defense also pointed to all the other fingerprints in the restaurant that were never matched to anyone. Now, of course, a building open to the public is going to have prints everywhere. So the defense is wondering why are they latching on to this one print and determining it is part of the crime and these other ones are not. They also said there was a previous print on a window that was matched to a different suspect earlier on in the investigation. And then when it was checked again, it was determined it wasn't a match. And that's the thing with prints. It's not a perfect exact science. And the defense was saying if the error could happen here, it could also have happened with Juan Luna. Something they pointed out to the jury was that he was 18 years old at the time of the murder. He did not have a criminal record. In the years since the murders, he's held down a job. He's gotten married. He had a child and had a almost perfectly clean record. And I'm not sure that argument's going to get the jury past his confession or the DNA, but it is an interesting one because we ask ourselves, how does someone go from committing a murder, particularly a mass murder, and in this case, the motive was just for fun, How does someone go from that to living a normal and productive life afterward, like nothing ever happened? I'm not saying that makes him innocent. I'm just saying it's a very interesting question to ask ourselves. And to wonder not just about Juan Luna, but about other people who are caught decades later having never committed another violent crime. Anyway, the jury took the case on May 9th, 2007. I assume it was in the afternoon because they only deliberated an hour before they called it a day. 
This jury was sequestered, and in the overnight hours, one of the jurors needed a medication that he couldn't get because of this. So the next morning, he was actually dismissed from the jury, and an alternate took his place. So they had to start over, but they only lost about an hour of deliberation. The jury then spent six hours deliberating before they came to their verdict. And they found Juan Luna guilty on seven charges of first-degree murder. Later on, a juror said it was the DNA evidence that clinched it. The testimony of Anne and Eileen actually didn't sway them that much. The defense had done a pretty good job undermining their credibility. He said that the two had been fairly heavy drug users at the time, but it was the DNA. It put Juan at the scene that night. Pairing that with his confession, the jury was convinced. The jurors, who I am sure were absolutely exhausted by this point, still had to return to decide the sentence. To be eligible for the death penalty, there had to be an aggravating factor to the murder. They ruled that there were two aggravating factors, as recognized by Illinois at the time. One was that Juan had murdered two or more people, and the second was that the murders took place in the commission of a felony, that felony, of course, being the armed robbery. Either of these would have made him eligible for the death penalty. So now we're in a sentencing hearing where mitigating circumstances can come in, as well as the victim impact statements. The Ellenfelt's family said that they did not believe in the death penalty, and I am sure that impacted some of the jurors. One of the things that comes up with the death penalty a lot is the victim's families and how it will impact them. The word closure gets thrown around a lot. The research on this is actually still up in the air. There was a small study in 2012 that showed families were able to move on more quickly after a trial when the sentence was life without parole. Things were more or less over at that point. The person wasn't getting out and they could move on. But when the sentence is death, it's just decades of automatic appeals, and those can be fairly re-traumatizing for the family. Some families have even expressed that they expected the execution to bring a measure of healing that wasn't there when it happened. But there are other families who say they do feel relief after the execution. This obviously is not a one-size-fits-all situation, but if a victim's family was standing there in front of me and told me they didn't believe in the death penalty, I would have a hard time voting for it, even if I personally believed in it. They also had several members of Juan's family testify about his character. His son, who was 10 years old at the time, gave videotaped testimony about his dad, and Juan cried through it, and I'm sure that impacted the jurors as well. The defense brought in their mitigating factors. They called a psychologist who testified that Juan admitted that on the night of the murders, he smoked five joints in addition to drinking several beers, in addition to taking speed. Now, Juan is still saying he did not do this. He did not murder these people, but that is what he was doing on that night. And the psychologist is saying that would have reduced his mental capacity. 
The psychologist talked to people who knew Juan, who said that his personality had changed when he would drink and do drugs. Remember about this reputation he had for being friendly and gentle? Well, that was out the window when he was under the influence. They said he was a belligerent drunk. And on across, the state brought out some not-so-squeaky-clean aspects of Juan's past. They said Juan had a history of abusing animals, but that testimony came from Anne Lockett, who said she heard about it from James Degorski. So this is like second- or third-hand information at best. The state did bring up a time when Juan left a threatening message for a girlfriend of James Degorski's, calling her nasty names, threatening her, threatening her family. The psychologist said Juan was a follower, so this phone call that Juan said James put him up to also tracks with that, that Juan was a follower and James was the more aggressive leader type. So the jury deliberated for two hours on the sentence after they heard all of this. One of the jurors voted against the death penalty. The juror who spoke publicly about the case said that no one pushed her. They didn't try to convince her to change her vote because they understood that at the end of the day, she would have to live with her decision. And if she sent someone to death row when she wasn't convinced that was the right thing to do, that would be a huge weight to carry. Since the jury couldn't decide unanimously, Juan Luna was sentenced to life without parole. In the end, this didn't matter at all. He would have a life sentence anyway. Illinois was, at the time, under a moratorium on executions. They had a few high-profile exonerations of death row inmates. Then, in 2011, the death penalty was abolished entirely in the state. All death row prisoners had their sentences commuted to life. So anyway, the jury voted here would still have us where we are today, with Juan Luna sitting in prison for life. Before I get to James Degorski's trial, let's go ahead and sum up Juan Luna's appeals. He had a few points in his appeal, and this is the direct appeal that challenges what happened at trial. And the one that's probably the most interesting here is the Fry hearing. So he believed they should have held a Fry hearing on the palm print evidence that was on the napkin and that his attorney was ineffective in not insisting on one. So in short, a Fry standard is what is applied to scientific evidence. For evidence to be admissible under the Fry standard, it has to be generally accepted as accurate by the scientific community. The way the print was matched used a method called ACE-V, so I don't know if they call that ACE-V, I don't know what they call it formally, or if they just say ACE-V. Anyway, Juan thinks they should have had a hearing to determine if this method met the Fry standard. The appellate court ruled that it did, and so there was no hearing needed. But then Juan also argued that the Fry standard shouldn't have been what they used anyway. The Fry ruling goes back to the 1920s, but there's a much more recent case from 1993 called Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and that established a new measure for scientific evidence. And Juan argued that 
the Daubert rule should be what applied. The appellate court didn't really rule on this except to say they weren't the court to decide which rule to use. So it was basically denied without them taking a stand. He had a few other points in there, but the bottom line, his appeal was denied in 2013. And we do have a quick look of what Juan Luna has coming up, because in February 2017, the U.S. government moved to rescind his citizenship. What happened is Juan applied to become a naturalized citizen in April 1994 after the murders. On the application, it asks you if you've ever committed a crime that you hadn't been arrested for. And Juan marked no. Since this was after the murders and he's since been convicted of them, the government is saying that he committed perjury and his citizenship should be revoked. The Illinois Innocence Project testified on his behalf, telling the court that they were looking at his innocence claim, they believed he had a valid one, and there were plans of filing a post-conviction relief petition. If Juan Luna was innocent of the murders, then he didn't lie on his application. The Innocence Project eventually dropped Juan's case, citing a conflict of interest, but it looks like he's still going to appeal if he can find an attorney to help him. The court ruled in March of 2019 that there would be a hearing on the citizenship because they wanted to know if Juan, one, had newly discovered evidence to appeal with, and two, what were the odds he was actually going to be successful in that appeal. I cannot find any information on the outcome of that hearing, but if I find anything, I will definitely update you guys. It's unclear to me what benefit, though, the government has by declaring him no longer a citizen because he's still in prison for life in the United States. It will give them the freedom to repatriate him to Mexico. Unless they're planning on that, this seems like a waste of time and money to take his citizenship away when he's not really getting any benefits from it currently. It's not like he had a pending appeal and it looked like he was going to get out and they wanted to deport him. His appeal was over in 2013, and four years later, they're trying to take away his citizenship. I'm not really taking a stand on his citizenship here. I'm just confused on why. So if anyone has insight into why the government would do this, aside from they want to repatriate him to Mexico, let me know. Social media, contact me through my website, basementfortproductions.com. I know I have lawyers who listen. I know I have law enforcement people who listen. Let me know why they would be moved to take away his citizenship. Okay, so let's move on to the James Degorski trial before I make this a three-parter. The first thing James's defense did was file a motion to suppress all of his statements to the police. This had a bit of back and forth. He initially got the videotape kicked out. This was a tape where he mostly just said yes when an officer recounted his previous confession. The issue here is that they re-Mirandized him after they asked the questions, not before. So the court first agreed too much time elapsed between the last time he had been Mirandized and the videotape. The state appealed and 
It was decided the videotape would be allowed. It was 18 hours between when he had last gotten his Miranda warning and the videotape. They said that that was a reasonable time to assume he still knew that his rights applied. This recording isn't like Juan Luna's at all. Almost everything of substance that James said was not recorded. This four or five minute tape of him saying yes is not really that compelling, but it was allowed in. Jury selection finally started on this case in August 2009. So we're talking two years, over two years since Juan's conviction and 16 and a half years after the murders. This was going to be the more difficult of the two trials going into it because they don't have a detailed recorded confession like they had on Juan and they don't have physical evidence linking James to the crime. The prosecution was really going to have to present a very cohesive story of what happened to convince the jury this is factually what happened. So they combined what Anne, Eileen, Juan, and James said in all these various statements. There were little discrepancies, like whose car they were driving. Those were largely glossed over. So this was a witness-heavy case. But no one who actually witnessed the crime, just people who heard about it. Ann Lockett's testimony was probably the most pivotal, and again, it changed a little. She mostly testified to what she said at Juan Luna's trial, but then there were little things like they wedged the back door shut so the employees couldn't get out. She also said that the motive was murder, that Juan Luna, the man who had no violent record, wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone, and James told her he just went along with it. And that's contrary to what the court heard about Juan in his trial and sentencing, where he was portrayed as a follower. Another notable person testifying was Sergeant Jacobson, the one who walked through the crime scene and left footprints everywhere. The prosecution showed the crime scene video that showed him walking through the scene and removing the bodies from the cooler, and that explains the footprints. This took away the defense's ability to say that these footprints were proof someone else was there. But it also doesn't mean that every footprint at the scene was Sergeant Jacobson's. Really what this showed is that the scene was contaminated. They also had someone testify about the murder weapon. It was never found, but someone did sell James a thirty-eight, and he testified that he personally had stolen the gun in the summer of 1992 and sold it to James later that same year. Then they had Alicia Hines testify, and she was the paramedic who responded to the jail when James's jaw was broken. She said that when she found out that he was arrested in the Browns massacre case and she was checking him out, she just asked him how he could do that, how he could kill seven people like that. She asked if he was drunk or high at the time, and according to Hines, James replied that he was sober and he killed just for fun. She did not immediately report this, though. It was four months later when she was being questioned about the jaw-breaking incident. 
I mean, a sheriff's deputy can't break the jaw of an inmate without there being some sort of investigation. And it was in the course of that investigation that she mentioned the comment about killing for fun. Now, if you remember back to James's statement to the police, one of his various confessions, he mentioned seeing a woman put two disabled children into a car outside of the restaurant. Well, they found that woman or who they believe was that woman, and she testified. Her name was Deborah Meadow, and she was a caregiver at a residential home for people with disabilities. She took two of the residents to the restaurant, and they left right at close. She testified that the crew was cleaning tables and floors when she left. She went out with the two men she had with her. She loaded them into the van, and then she went back inside to grab a cup of coffee, and then she left with them. There are two reasons this is important. The first is, how would James know this woman with two disabled individuals was in the parking lot at closing time if he wasn't there? This isn't something I could find in any of the early reporting in the media. I don't know. Deborah Meadow may have talked to reporters and mentioned she was there right before the killings. The story may have been out there. I just don't know. I couldn't find it. Maybe she had already talked to police, and this was one of those details that slipped into the interrogation, like has been alleged by others who gave incriminating statements that they were fed little pieces. The only way James could have gotten this information is he was there. He heard it on the media, or the police fed it to him. But the second thing was that a coffee stirrer was found in the trash with the discarded chicken bones and the napkins. The person who ordered the chicken meal, because they had the receipt for it, did not also get coffee. So it was assumed by the state that this stir stick was Deborah's. She went in, she got her coffee, she put cream and sugar in it, threw the stick away. But on cross examination, she admitted she couldn't really remember if she threw the stick away or not. You'd think she would have, but I mean, I often leave the stir stick in a to-go container to prevent it from spilling. So maybe she brought it with her. Makes more sense that that stir stick was hers and she threw it away. But the defense pointed out maybe the stir stick belonged to the real killer. They were arguing that James didn't do it. Juan did it, and he did it with an accomplice, but that accomplice was not James. The defense really was using the lack of forensic evidence linking James to the scene for all it was worth. There were fingerprints on the breaker box where the electricity was turned off. None of those matched James. Fingerprints on the service door, windows, tables, none of them matched. According to the confessions, they did wear gloves during the robbery. But if you're going to believe his confession, he didn't wear gloves the entire time he was in the restaurant, but none of his prints were found on a food tray or the trash can or anywhere else. Like Juan Luna's case, this defense team wanted to show that the statements implicating James were coerced. Not only James's statements, but probably Eileen and Anne's as well. And the easiest way to do that was to call to the stand, people who had been coerced to falsely confess. So they called John Semenik to the stand. 
And he testified that he only confessed due to harassment by the police, not just harassing him, but also harassing his family. He said that he was told he would not be able to leave the station or call anyone until he told the police what they wanted to hear. He said his statements were all based on what he heard on the news and read in the papers. If he got a detail wrong, the police would tell him they knew it wasn't true, and he would change his story to try to match what he thought they were looking for. This was a How to Elicit a False Confession 101 lecture here. Casey Sander also testified she is the one who gave statements that implicated her boyfriend, Todd Wakefield, in the crime. And if you remember from part one, she was the Browns restaurant employee that was supposed to work that night. She had gotten Rico Solis to take her shift. He was trying to earn as much money as he could, so he was eager to pick up extra shifts. So Casey, who was 17 when this happened, dealt with nightmares for years afterward due to this trauma. She said that on the night of the massacre, she was with Todd and they were just driving around. They were dating at the time, but that's all they were doing. But the police kept contacting her and questioning her. She said the original interviews with the police, they were friendly. They just seemed to want to know what she knew. But then they started turning nastier and eventually the police were just mean. They were showing her crime scene photos. Remember, these are her coworkers. They were giving her grisly details. They were yelling at her. In her last interview with police, the one where she implicated Todd, she was picked up from work around 6 p.m. They questioned her until 2 a.m. without food, without rest. She wanted to go home, but they wouldn't let her. She said they were screaming at her worse than a drill sergeant. And that's her actual testimony, worse than a drill sergeant. The police told her her nightmares were her subconsciously remembering what happened. The nightmares were due to trauma. We know that. But they were telling her it's because she really witnessed what happened. So she started making statements about being there when Todd started shooting, and they let her go home. But she was so shaken by how they were able to make her question her own memories and say things that she didn't think were true that she hired an attorney the next day. The attorney told her to stop talking to the police, and even though the police kept trying to contact her, she never gave them another statement. Casey's statements were not allowed in at Juan's trial, but she was allowed to testify at James's trial, and I'm not sure the reasoning for this discrepancy. In the end, this case, too, went to the hands of a jury. After they deliberated, they too found James guilty on seven counts of first-degree murder. They had a sentencing phase, but this time two of the jurors voted against the death penalty. So James, too, was given life without parole. So let's sum up James's appeals quickly. The first one was very quickly denied. They were things he felt unfairly prejudiced the jury against him, like how they showed the video of the bodies being removed from the freezers. But the appellate court didn't find any of that convincing. He filed another appeal in 2016, and this one's a lot more interesting. It deals with Anne Lockett's testimony. Something that happened after the trials. Anne Lockett got half 
of the $100,000 reward after these convictions. That was a condition of the reward. It had to be information that led to a conviction. James was arguing that his defense was not effective because they did not cross-examine her about this reward. $50,000 is a lot of reason to lie. He also said his defense didn't really look into Anne's story to see if it was even feasible. For instance, she said she got a phone call at the hospital. She was in the hospital following a suicide attempt, and she was on suicide watch that night. Anne said James called her and told her to turn on the TV, implying that he was involved in the crime that she saw all over the news. But under suicide watch at this particular hospital, they would not allow you access to television. All phone calls were supervised, and they were only allowed between the patient and close family. So James is saying none of this could have even happened, and his attorneys did not challenge that in court. Another thing not challenged in court was Anne's claim that James was her boyfriend. The two had broken up before the massacre, and she was dating someone else at the time who was also someone who was questioned in relation to it. He was not brought up as an alternative suspect by the defense. James believes he should have been. Anne also had a psychiatric history that James thought the jury should know about. The relevant parts are from September 1992. One report said that Anne had significant issues with dishonesty and lying. A second report from a different doctor, but the same time frame, said that she demonstrated some antisocial tendencies and that she was, quote, attempting to attract attention and establish an identity, end quote. James is saying that if his defense brought up any of this, it would have undermined Anne's testimony. Juan's jury disregarded what Anne said to a degree and based their verdict on the DNA. But in James's case, where there was no forensic evidence, Anne's testimony had a lot more weight. It was a lot more important in convicting James. In January 2018, a judge ruled that even without Anne's testimony, there was enough to convict James. His attorney said she would appeal this ruling. I have not seen anything on the legal websites about this, so my assumption is it is still pending. Both James Degorski, now 47 years old, and Juan Luna, 45, are in the Stateville Correctional Center, which is a maximum security prison located an hour south of Palatine. There have been civil cases in this as well. James Degorski sued for the beating that broke his jaw. He was awarded $451,000 by the jury, a ruling that really angered the victim's families. It's unlikely he has seen much, if any, of that money The state has a right to take a chunk of it to offset the cost of housing him as a prisoner for life. And the families of the victims can also file wrongful death suits and pretty much wipe out the rest. It's not doing him a lot of good in prison anyway. There are limits on how much you can have on your account and how much you can spend in prison. So this money's not going far. The officer who punched him was fired but he was acquitted in a criminal trial after he claimed it was self-defense. 
Two of the victims' families sued Brown's chicken for their lax security, but they lost because it was determined it was the franchise owner's responsibility to ensure the safety of the employees. And of course, in this case, the franchise owners were victims as well. Frank Portillo, the owner of the parent company, had all of the restaurants fitted for security cameras afterward. By all reports, this incident devastated him emotionally. He became almost obsessed with violent crime and finding out the cause of it. When he found out that illiteracy was a common thread with violent criminals, he started funding programs in an underperforming school in one of the worst parts of Chicago. He joined the Chicago Crime Commission. He was truly and deeply affected by this. And he was also financially devastated. After the murder, this brand was equated to a massacre and sales tanked. He managed to save the company from bankruptcy while he was also working to prevent violent crime. But this was just an incredibly dark time for him. And I don't know that we really generally think of the owner of Brown's Chicken when we think of this crime. We think so much of the victim's families who obviously were very, very broken by this. It's always a little overwhelming to see the ripple effect of violent crime on people. And in some cases, they try to do something good from this. So Frank Portillo is trying to help prevent violent crime. There is a memorial scholarship in Richard and Lynn's names that go to high school or community college students who show leadership qualities, which is something they always fostered in the people around them. The city did demolish the Brown's Chicken Restaurant in Palatine in 2001. It's one less painful reminder of this horrific crime. It took over a decade for this to go to trial, and now we have two convictions. This case can be seen as a win for DNA cold case evidence, but both men continue to assert their innocence. And I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of the legal saga of this case. And as always, I will keep you updated on any developments. 